This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week is Dr. Jason Saunders, DC, the owner of Core Therapies Family Wellness Center in Florham Park, New Jersey. And he's the clinical director of HBOT USA, which is a service educating practitioners, patients, and athletes on the benefits of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, better known as HBOT. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. What if uh, you start by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and and how you got into this specialty of hyperbarics? Absolutely. And thanks for having me on. I'm happy to talk about hyperbaric oxygen. I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood and underutilized therapies out there. and so powerful to, to have such great effects in many ways, which I'm sure we'll get into. So, uh, you know, I'm a chiropractor, been a chiropractor for about 18 years. And a couple of years into practice, I herniated a disc. You know, that's not good for chiropractic business. No. And so <laughs> I was out of commission for a little bit. My wife's a chiropractor, so she was treating me. And, you know, for the back pain issues, I, I had pretty fast recovery. I was back to work in about, you know, two weeks or so. Uh, but I had drop foot in my right leg that Ooh. continued to linger on, actually ended up lingering on for 18 months, you know, uh, after that herniation. And so I was about 26 at the time. And I was training for a triathlon and I could barely walk, let alone run or bike. So I kind of just started thinking like, you know, my background was exercise physiology. I do a ton of nutrition, you know, between the chiropractic, the exercise, the nutrition. I was like, I know how to help people with this problem. And I couldn't even, you know, fix my own situation. So uh, I happened to be at a conference and they had chambers there. I had no idea what they were at the time. And, but they were doing, you know, demo sessions. So, that, you know, I said, oh, that looks cool. I'll, I'll go in there. So, you know, I did about a 30 minute session, climbed in, climbed out, and I was walking around the vendor hall and I had like a pins and needles in my foot. And it was the first time I had felt my foot in like a year and a half. Ooh. And so all of a sudden I was like, man, what is that what happening? Just happened? Yeah. Is that from that thing I was just in? Like, I don't yeah, even know yeah, what yeah. it was. So, you know, I went back and I spoke to the guy and of course he said, oh yeah, no, that's exactly what it does. <laughs> what and did I'm you like, do to yeah, me? right. You know, <laughs> you're just trying to sell me your chamber. Yeah. And, um, you know, so anyway, he agreed to, uh, I did about eight hours over four days and I left that conference with about maybe 15, 20% improvement in my foot. And I was like, I don't know what this thing is. I don't know what it does, but it's helping. I bought one, brought it home and treated myself and, you know, ended up having, you know, in a pretty short period of time, I had a full recovery of that drop foot. And, you know, it really struck me because I said, you know, listen, I didn't know by, by no stretch, do I know everything then nor now, but I felt like I had been through a lot. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time on education uh, for myself and trying to do the right thing for patients. And at no point in time did hyperbaric ever come up. Mm -hmm. And here it is, you know, I'm just stumbling on it by accident. And it was like the only thing that gave me my foot back. <laughs> and so that's really, you know, it, that struck a nerve literally. And I just, you know, I jumped right into the research and tried to 
figure out as much as I could about it. We started implementing it in our practice shortly thereafter. So, so it's been about 14 years that we've been offering it and it's been uh, quite the journey. Uh, well, that long, 14 years. Yeah. yeah. And it's so it's you're really a, one of the kind of the pioneers in doing this. Uh, I mean, there's still there's quite a few well before me, you know, who really we wouldn't be able to have this conversation should they had not been, you know, doing what they did in the research and getting themselves out there. But um, I guess I'd say we were early adopters. And since, you know, that's just brought us to a place now where we're, we're still using it in clinic. We actually have a few clinics that we run, but now I spend most of my time traveling around conferences, you know, teaching hyperbaric medicine to chiropractors, medical doctors, DOs, you know, trying to, trying to really dispel the myths and misconceptions and, and hopefully increase awareness to a point where more and more people are interested in, in implementing this because it is such a powerful tool. It is so safe and it is able to do something that really nothing else can do. Maybe I can just throw in a little background and then get you to kind of explain what it is you're hearing from me. But I think when a lot of consumers hear about hyperbaric oxygen, they probably think of chambers, especially if they're certified divers. You know, I was certified, I don't know, 35 years ago. And, you know, it was a big deal. Like you want to dive places that they're chambers. And what we were talking about are these big metal things, you know, that uh, some of them big enough to walk into and sit up in, et cetera. But, you know, the your training includes understanding when to use these chambers, what they are. And then at the same time, I remember in my residency program, we had a handful of people with chronic wounds. And they weren't healing any other way, you know, a diabetic with an ulcer on their leg. And they were using the chambers for that purpose. What I remember from those days was that it was thousands of dollars an hour, right? Very expensive. And and you'll have to tell me, but I think it's, what, two atmospheres or more that they had in those chambers. You know, so it was pretty high pressure. And a lot of times it was pure oxygen they were breathing. So... That was kind of the early days of what I knew about it. And then on top of that, here in Boulder we at the university, there's a guy named Igor Gamov. And Igor Gamov invented the Gamov bag, which is a, a, a portable soft chamber. You wouldn't really call it a chamber, a bag that you could pump up with your foot. And they would take these things up on the mountain. I think they, they pioneered them on Mount McKinley. So if people got altitude sickness, they'd pump these things up and put people in there, not necessarily with oxygen. Right. So but if you added the oxygen, that helps. So now we're talking about pressure. There's several different things involved here. Pressure that's greater than the pressure at sea level and oxygen. So hyperbaric oxygen. Can you tell us a little bit about how things have evolved from the early days where it was all about these big metal chambers to something you could buy and put in your office or people could buy and take home. So what, can you tell us about the evolution of that? Yeah. So what's funny is in all these years, uh, even the clinical chambers haven't changed that much. <laughs> They're still mm. typically, you know, you'll see some clear acrylic tubes, you know, but a lot of chambers are still large steel with a few porthole windows. Ooh. Uh, you know, the technology of the equipment has not evolved as much as you might think in all these years. Yeah. The application of that tool has evolved a lot, but the, the technology of the equipment, you know, not as much. But uh, to your point, they were originally designed for the bends or decompression sickness, which is when you're breathing air, which is predominantly nitrogen, 
so it's about 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen. And you go to relatively deep depths and you stay there for a period of time, you're accumulating oxygen, but your body's utilizing the oxygen. You're accumulating nitrogen, which is basically inert. There's really nowhere for that to go. And as you come up to the surface, all of those gases start bubbling out of your body. And because there's nowhere for nitrogen to go, if you come up to the surface too quickly, that nitrogen, those nitrogen bubbles accumulate literally in your circulation. And, and your can, nervous system. And your nervous system. And so it yeah. can create, you know, ischemic attacks, you know, nerve blockages, strokes, uh, arterial gas embolism, stroke, all of it. And so that's, that's called the bends. And there's a whole history with that, which we could do a whole show on. But at the end of the day, what they figured out was if you get bent, which is a nitrogen gas issue, not an mm -hmm. oxygen issue. If you mm -hmm. get bent, you bring that person back to the depth where they were. Mm -hmm. You keep them there for a period of time, which is going to help dissolve all those bubbles back into the solution. So 60 feet underwater or exactly. 90 feet underwater. Yeah. yeah. And then you just bring them up real slow. And if you bring them mm -hmm. up real slow, the bubbles still come out, but they don't accumulate in the body. And that mm -hmm. gives the body a chance to off gas. You know, when you dive, if you have your, you know, your three minute safety stop at 15 mm -hmm. feet, that's all mm -hmm. about off gassing nitrogen and just mm -hmm. you know, decreasing the chances of that stuff happening. So um, what we know about, in general, just to go back to that, what we know about gas laws, if you will, is that, you know, at sea level, it's, there's a pressure, there's an atmosphere, that atmosphere is what allows us to extract oxygen out of, uh, out of the air that you're breathing right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we call that at sea level, we call it one atmosphere. So where I live, it's one atmosphere, it's the exact right amount of pressure to saturate my red blood cells 100%. Yeah. If I were, if you were to invite me to your house, and I was able to fly out there, there would be a huge difference in my body's ability to absorb oxygen. There's not because there's less oxygen in Colorado, but because there's less pressure in Colorado because you're higher than sea level. So as you leave sea level and you go up in a mountain or you live somewhere in altitude, there's less pressure. And because there's less pressure, the driving force, the gradient to drive oxygen into our body is less. Uh, you know, we, we perceive that as harder to breathe. And so as a result, our body adapts. And so if you live at altitude, your body will make more red blood cells than mine will at sea level. And that's because we can't fully saturate, we need more carrying ca you know, capacity. So we increase our red blood cell count as a way. So I tell you, I, my oximeter reading here in Boulder, which is a mile high, you know, can be 96%. But when I go up to my cabin at 9,000 feet, it can drop to 88. And you know, uh, you go, whoa, am I dying? It's just like you're saying that's a normal, normal adaption to, to what's altitude. going on. Right. So like, you know, it's, you know, and then if you came to me in New Jersey, you know, you would have more red blood cells than I do. And mm -hmm. you'd be able to saturate all of them. And that's really the performance aspect, like where athletes, you know, train mm -hmm. at altitude and then compete at sea level. It's about going to altitude, being exposed to lower pressures, increasing your red blood cell count getting accustomed to that level of oxygen, then going back to sea level where the pressure is higher, saturating at a, at a much higher red blood cell count, which gives you a, a huge advantage over me in terms of your oxygen carrying capacity versus mine. Do they um, still say train high, sleep low? I remember that was a saying for a while. Yeah. Train, yeah. Go do your running during the day and then go back to lower altitude at night. Right. Yep. Exactly. And some and people so, would sleep in chambers to do that. Sleep in chambers and try to hyperoxygenate or, yeah. you know, all those. Yeah. And, you know, there's the science is mixed on that because, you know, in order for the body to really build or, or let go of red blood cells, it has to be really convinced that that's important. So, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 
definitely creates a lot of those adaptations. You know, mm -hmm. eight hours a day, it may not quite mm. cut it, you know, but but people still kind of tinker with a lot of those those avenues. Anyway, so just like you lose pressure when you go away from sea level, you gain pressure when you go below sea level. And so hyperbaric is all about using it therapeutically to uh, go below sea level pressures, increasing gradient. So you increase the driving force of oxygen into the body. Now you can certainly saturate your red blood cells. That's easy. But now what you're actually doing is you're dissolving uh, oxygen into the plasma in of the blood mm -hmm. and the tissues in a way that normally is, is impossible at, at normal atmospheric pressures. And so this is really the only tool that allows you to super saturate with oxygen using, you know, hyperbaric. And then depending on what pressure you're exposed to and what percentage of oxygen you're breathing and how much time you spend in the chamber, that determines your overall, you know, absorption. And now, you know, just, just to your point with those other types of chambers, what we've realized is if you're treating something very serious, gangrene or wounds, really high pressure and 100% oxygen, it's required to, to have a meaningful effect on these people. If you're looking at this as like a, you know, a, a, just a general inflammation control or just a less severe issue that you're trying to help somebody with or performance, you don't need two and a half atmospheres at 100% oxygen. So we can start using lower pressure devices, lower percentages of oxygen, but still have a very um, meaningful session. And so, you know, we've basically taken the gamma bag that you described, which was for acute mountain sickness, which is, you know, uh, uh, high altitude pulmonary edema and high altitude cere cerebral edema. And when somebody is experiencing that and you put them back to close to sea level pressure, so they're still on the mountain, but because they're in the chamber, you're pressurizing the chamber and creating a, a temporary sea level like environment, the body will resorb a lot of that inflammation in those fluids. And you can really, you know, save a person's life in that moment. Now, and you don't you take, have to be in a big metal hard yeah, chamber yeah. To do that right. that's your point is like these right, soft exactly. chambers so now people have these chambers now if i'm at sea level i'm not at the top of mount everest i'm just at sea level and i use that same concept instead of being at twenty thousand feet and trying to get somebody to six thousand feet i'm starting at let's say zero and i'm going 10 feet below sea level and all of a sudden i can get 30 percent more oxygen absorption than what my body's used to getting and is so that with we, Additional oxygen? Uh, say that thirty percent would just be air only. Air only. Mm -hmm. At at because basically what you're doing is you're increasing atmospheric pressure by about a third. So uh, and it's a direct correlation between pressure and gradient and oxygen drive. So it's about twenty twenty nine percent increase in oxygen air only in a soft chamber from sea level. And then if you added oxygen to that, you can go from about thirty percent up to about you know three three and a half times more oxygen. Um, in a simple setup, like a soft chamber with uh, some, you know, 94% oxygen, give or take. So when people come into your clinic, they, you know, what would you typically do? Like how many atmospheres and, and do you do oxygen or not? Let's say somebody with, let's say two different patients, one person's had traumatic brain injury, right? You know, they've had a concussion and they're having trouble recovering. So that's one type. And then another one is an athlete that says, you know, I want to improve my endurance or my speed or something like that. Would you treat them differently or? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, like that TBI, you know, you're trying to bring down the inflammation. Ultimately you'll get neurogenesis. So you'll, you'll actually stimulate, you know, nerves, even central nervous system regrowth, uh, central nervous system, stem cells. 
The angiogenic effect of hyperbaric is pretty remarkable. So if there's capillary damage, which typically there will be with some sort of trauma, especially brain trauma. So that angiogenic effect you're looking for. So that person, we're going to be pretty aggressive because not necessarily in pressure, but in frequency, because if we can drive the stem cell effect and the angiogenic effect, you know, we can get this person to heal and not need this going forward because we can lit literally, you know, regrow the blood vessels and have them self-oxygenate by the time we're finished. So that person, we might be doing 1.3, 1.5 atmospheres, typically 100% oxygen or 94% oxygen just to get that extra oxygen stimulating factor. And that'll help that person heal. But we'll be doing five or six hours a week for maybe- Oh, a years, lot, you know? a lot. So the frequency really, you know, makes a huge difference from a healing standpoint. For the athlete looking to recover, we could certainly do the lower pressures. So like the 1.3 atmosphere range, and we could do with or without the oxygen. You know, some people feel like if a little is more, you know, a lot has to be better. And so people want the extra oxygen. Although I'd say 30% increase in a human who normally has no capacity to do that. It's a lot. That's very meaningful. My whole story about the nerve and the disc and everything, that was 1.3 air only. Mm. I didn't even know about oxygen or higher pressure at the time. I had no idea what I was doing. I just bought this bag and zipped myself up and, you know, <laughs> so, um, and I still was able to heal that nerve. So there's a lot of benefit in that air only yeah. environment, but a lot of people still feel like they want that extra oxygen just to cover all their bases. So. And you usually do a, like a, use a mask or yeah, use a mask for the oxygen. And then, you know, depending, you know, that athlete could use it as performance, literally a few hours before an event, but yeah. a lot of athletes really benefit from it when they use it on some regular basis from a recovery from their training. In other words, I'd argue most elite athletes are overtrained and or under recovered. And mm -hmm. so if we can do things to improve their recovery by default, they're going to mm -hmm. see an improvement in their performance. And so if we use it on in the behind the scenes ongoing, I think the improvement in recovery showing up in performance um, capacity is probably a bigger effect than the individual session, let's say right before an event. But now you said you were, one. you told me earlier um, before the show that you were working with athletes in Hawaii. Can you tell us a little bit about that scenario? Like, yeah, so exactly. I mean, this is literally the same conversation almost in that concussions become a really big topic in the surf community. Oh. You know, these guys, and it's not something I had really, just being honest, never really thought about much, but, you know, 20, 30 foot waves, 40, 60 foot waves, and these guys get <laughs> tossed. And when you hit water going, you know, 30 miles an hour from a 60 foot wave, you know, there's, there's issues from that. Or, or even if you got underwater, but then you hit some rock or some reef or the sand. So TBI and concussion is, you know, it's a huge issue in the surf community. So there were some of those athletes were coming to us strictly, literally right before their heat, just to get, you know, kind of zoned in. Cause it's a, it's a really good time to just do some breathing, some meditation, some visualization. So you're sort of alone in this chamber, really relaxing, really breathing. So I think it's a good space to just you know, get the mind ready for a competition, but it's also obviously, you know, getting a huge amount of oxygen and they would, so they would come in pre pre-performance before their heat in order to get kind of boosted before that. But we had a lot of people coming on, on pretty, uh, you know, pretty significant protocols trying to recover from their last maybe concussion or two, you know, from last year or this year. And so we were doing even more with them trying to have a healing effect outside of whatever the performance effect might be. Well, it's, it makes me sound like you should have a, uh, one of those portable chambers in the locker room, you know, at a football field 
right? <laughs> to just have these guys getting in there preventatively because they're going to all get their heads knocked around. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. And, and a lot of the football, some basketball players, but a lot of football players have these on their own in their home. Or oh, they just own them. Their, and they don't like to talk about it because they don't want people to know what they're doing. That's, you know, yeah. getting better performance. <laughs> it's their secret. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, we've gotten a few teams to start incorporating it. It's harder to get the teams involved. You know, each athlete makes their own decision on their care. Um, and a lot of them are seeing the, the benefit and the performance aspect. Um, the teams are starting to come around, but yeah, I would put, you know, five or six of these in every locker room and these guys could be using them ongoing, you know, from a concussion brain, you know, we'll see some CTE research coming out in the near future. It's, um, it's very meaningful. So actually doing studies on chronic traumatic encephalopathy and, and seeing what happens. So here's kind of a, a million dollar question, which is, you know, an issue that I've heard raised several times in the past. Hey, you're, you're breathing all this oxygen at, at higher pressure. Doesn't that increase oxidative stress? You know, don't you get more free radicals in your body and could that be bad for you? Um, so what, what's your response to that concern? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time on that one. Um, could be one, because I get that question a lot. <laughs> a lot, yeah. <laughs> and two, you know, I'm in the middle of a, I'm, I'm, so because the research, because hyperbaric really requires more research on these topics that we just don't mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, I decided to go back. So I'm in the middle of a, a PhD in molecular biology and regenerative oh. medicine and hyperbaric. And I'm doing some research on hyperbaric right now, trying to answer those questions because we need those answers as a as an industry, and uh, I I would break it down like this: from what I can gather from the research that exists, yes, oxidation is terrible. The lipid peroxidation, the breakdown of our membranes and our DNA and our epigenome. There's a lot of consequences to being over oxidized, and so I don't want to discount that at all. At the same time, I do believe that there's a difference between becoming over oxidized from our external environment which has a different effect than the oxidation that our body creates through normal respiration. So in other words, extremes we'll use, but let's just say you're, you know, you sleep, you know, your, your Wi-Fi router is under your pillow, you smoke, you drink, you know, your food <laughs> is all processed. You're, you know, all the, that's a typical whatever. American, right? Exactly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're, you're massively over oxidized from your environment that completely depletes your own intrinsic, antioxidant system. And if you're not doing something externally to support that, you know, through supplementation or other, you know, you're going to be in a lot of trouble pretty quickly. And I, and I think that that's different than, so yes, hyperbaric will increase oxygen to your mitochondria, a consequence or, or a byproduct of that oxygen to your mitochondria is an increase in superoxide, which is a free radical. That's that there's no way around that. And at the same time, one of the effects that we see of using hyperbaric regularly is an increase in superoxide dismutase and an increase in glutathione. And so what seems to be is because it's an intrinsic source of oxidation, it actually upregulates our body's own capacity to tolerate the oxidative effect. And I would say, I would take that one step further and say, you know, if you start somebody gently and build up their hyperbaric exposures, which allows them to build up their own intrinsic or endogenous antioxidant systems like the glutathiones and the SODs, not only will that make them more resilient to the treatment, I believe it will make them more resilient to their environment. And so I think that there's two pieces of that, that that's critical. And, and I've seen that in patients you know, over and over again 
um, you know, just in just in clinical treatment. So uh, one of my take home messages from what you're saying is that as a practitioner, it's important to know what you're doing, right? Because you could, (laughs) you know, there there are conceivably ways that that you might cause more problems if you don't do this very precisely and correctly. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows they've had like those very fragile patients, you know, mm-hmm. and every supplement you try or dietary, you know, it's always like, you know, you say, you know, everyone takes five, they need to take half every other day, yeah. you know, yeah. just to, and, and so that, that's not the person I would just say, okay, let's go to two and a half atmospheres at hundred percent oxygen and, you know, keep our fingers crossed. We will certainly over oxidize them. They are, they're just too fragile. But if you know, if you can recognize that person and then build them up and take them slowly through the process, then I think you can certainly, you know, uh, see those benefits. And in some cases, you know, if it's, if it's critical, let's say with a certain Lyme patient or something, if I really want to go faster on the hyperbaric side, but I'm nervous that they're, that they're not going to tolerate it as well as I want them to, then I might actually load them up with some glutathione, some molecular hydrogen, you know, I might do certain ingredients. NAC perhaps. Yeah. I'll try to, I'll just try to get a jump on it and, and, you know, protect them from the oxidative effect. I don't want to do a lot of that because I think the oxidative effect is actually a big part of the signaling. Uh, benefit. uh, It could be beneficial. So I don't want to, I don't want to mute it completely, but I might want to just take the edge off so that I don't blast them out, you know? Great. So we're going to take a short break. And after that, we'll answer some questions from our listeners. You put in the work, training at the gym, on the court, or at the track, pushing your body to the limit. Now you can maximize your results and unlock your inner champion with Thorne's high-performance sports nutrition line. The same supplements and health solutions trusted and used by U.S. national teams and elite athletes across more than 100 professional and collegiate sports teams. Only Thorne can offer the most comprehensive line of NSF certified for sport products on the supplement market, making Thorne the unquestioned leader in both quality and innovation in nutritional support for athletes. Visit Thorne.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from our community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, should athletes use hyperbaric oxygen treatment? And I, I assume what they're getting at is, is this something that, that all athletes would benefit from, certain kinds of athletes? Um, and then a, a part two of that question is, if an athlete's going to do this to presumably improve performance, uh, are there some dietary supplements that they would benefit from that are going to uh, you know, help them get the most out of this treatment? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, again, this, this will be, a, I guess, a personal opinion based on what I know in the research. Uh, I do think athletes should use hyperbaric oxygen. I think, I, I think I alluded to earlier. I think most athletes are, whether you want to call it overtrained or under recovered. Mm-hmm. I think that taking steps, especially you know, the typical athlete, you know, even even most of us in our in high school and college, it's you know, we could do anything we wanted to our bodies without any consequences. 
And the more you realize, especially for them, that their paychecks are you know, directly related to their performance, uh, it's critical that they keep their bodies and minds you know, sharp throughout the process. And so helping their performance and, and really helping their recovery is probably the most important aspect of that. I would take that one step further and just to say, even if you're not an athlete and you just expect to have you know, relatively decent performance in your life and you're under a decent amount of stress and you're under recovered and overperformed in your life, you know, I, you know, for myself, for sure. And a lot of my patients that aren't elite athletes, you know, hyperbaric in a lot of ways, hyperbaric could be looked at as oxygen as a nutrient. Mm. And, and, you know, I'll just go into this because it'll help me answer the next question. All vitamins have, you know, consequences of deficiency, optimum ranges, benefits for mega dosing and possible toxicity levels. Right. So, you know, if you don't get enough vitamin C, there's a name of that. It's called scurvy. There's consequences to that then the RDA would tell you, well, here's enough vitamin D to not have scurvy, but it's not really enough to do all the things that you want it to do in your life. It's just, it's just enough to not have symptoms of a disease. So we might want to take a little bit more to get the optimum range of vitamin C that allows us to have enough vitamin C to do all the things that vitamin C does in our body. And even if we got that every day, periodically, we might want to mega dose vitamin C for various reasons. There's a virus, a cold, you know, people do vitamin C IV for cancers and treatments, different things. So you might mega dose it. And then you could also take that too far and eventually get just too much vitamin C. Mm -hmm. uh, I look at oxygen the exact same way. If you don't get enough oxygen, there's consequences to that. It's called hypoxia. Mm -hmm. In order to get normal ranges or optimal ranges of oxygen, we need to be basically hundred percent saturated every minute of every day. There's no real storage of oxygen in our body. It's critical that we're constantly replenishing our oxygen loads. And even if we're 100% saturated every minute of every day, that doesn't mean that periodically getting some more oxygen, mega dosing that oxygen as a tool for healing or a tool for recovery or a tool for performance allows us to get a little bit more of that nutrient to have the outcome that we're trying to have. And just like anything else, you could overdo it. And there is a thing called oxygen toxicity. I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but too much of a good thing is still not good. So you know what? We want to avoid oxygen toxicity. So, you know, if you look at it like a nutrient, you start to see that it's really something that most of us should do, if not on a regular basis, at least periodically. That being said, what do you pair that with, especially for performance? You know, when I look at performance, I look at mitochondrial function because ultimately we're talking about cellular energy. If your cells can make energy, then the tissues of those cells can perform better. Muscles have you know, mitochondria to make energy. Your liver has mitochondria to, to detox your body. Your brain has mitochondria to make synapse connections and, and neurotransmitters. So your whole body has to make energy in order to function properly. And the amount of, or the, the efficiency and the performance of each mitochondria could really make a difference in terms of how that tissue type is performing. So especially in sports, we're looking at muscle performance, potentially. So upregulating mitochondrial function is, it would be critical for those people. So if you look at all the rate limiting steps to let's say ATP production, once you get through like the first few steps of uh, cellular respiration where the, where the mitochondria is making energy, you can look at the electron transport chain. So all the food you eat, really you eat food so that you can break it down into this thing called NAD. And NAD gets to your electron transport chain to pass electrons through that process. So the amount and the quality of NAD that makes it to the mitochondria, that's critical. And that comes from your food. But now we also know that we can get that through supplementation. So we can get, you know, NR or NMN, right? So yep. these nicotinamide riboside. Yep. So these um, basically NAD precursors. And mm -hmm. we can take that nutritionally as a way to fuel 
that first step of energy production. Mm -hmm. Next, you have to be able to pass those electrons along. And one of the first rate limiting steps is a thing called ubiquinol. That happens mm -hmm. to be CoQ10. So mm -hmm. CoQ10 is an electron transport carrier in the electron transport chain and CoQ10 deficiency would limit your ability to make energy. So making sure you have enough CoQ10 uh, is, a, is a great next step in that process. Uh, the next mobile carrier is a thing called cytochrome C. It happens to be that cytochrome C is very light sensitive. And so just like I talk about oxygen being a nutrient, I think light is a nutrient and our body is very light receptive and certain wavelengths of red light and infrared light are very cytochrome C stimulating. And so again, these red light therapies that you start to see now popping up all over infrared sauna or red light therapies, the, you know, bulbs and different things that we, different ways that people use this therapy, that to me is a, is a nutrient to stimulate that cytochrome C. And it does other things in our body too, but specifically with the mitochondria. And then the last step of energy production is, uh, well, it's complicated, but ultimately oxygen needs to be there to be the electron acceptor to turn this you know, free radical oxygen into water. Mm -hmm. And so oxygen becomes a rate limiting step, upregulating your oxygen, just like in your car engine, you need fuel and the mm -hmm. quality of your fuel makes a difference. And you have to mix it with oxygen and the amount of oxygen you mix in that mixture makes a difference. And in your engine, we call that combustion. When the fuel and the oxygen mix to oxidize, to make power, heat, and exhaust, we call that in our cell metabolism. Fuel, mm -hmm. NAD, mixes with oxygen mm -hmm. ultimately to create power, heat, and exhaust. And our exhaust is carbon dioxide and water. And you know, upregulating all of the steps along that path could really make a difference in mitochondrial performance. And so you can supplement a lot of those pieces along with oxygen to really um, you know, get a boost in mitochondrial function. Cool, very cool. So is there any downside to doing this? Is the next question says, what are the potential complications or side effects of HBOT? And then there, uh, another part B to that question is, uh, you know, there are a lot of places popping up now that offer memberships where you can go in and, you know, get cryotherapy, IV, vitamin C, Myers cocktails, and we'll throw in a hyperbaric, um, you know, for, you know, $200 a month or something like that. You know, but uh, I don't think there's a lot of supervision in those centers. So do you have any comments about, A, are there, is there a downside to doing this? And you've already kind of met, touched on that earlier. And then B, well, you know, what about places where there really isn't anyone supervising you for side effects? Yeah. So, you know, let's say contra, absolute contraindications. There's very few. It's really, if you can't equalize the pressure in your ears, you can't go in just like scuba. So you need to be, as the pressure increases in the chamber, you need to do something to clear that pressure. Just like when you're landing in an airplane. It's a yeah, the babies on the planes that start yeah. crying, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, that's a thing. You have to be able to equalize the pressure. It's not hard to do, but that's just to say it out loud. And then pneumothorax. So if you have a hole in your lung, you can't go in the chamber. Because if you have an airspace that you can't equalize, that airspace will get pressurized and will cause lots of consequences. So what if you really, knew you had a bleb, like, a, you know, you'd had a CT scan for some reason and they said, oh, you got a blab, but it's intact. If it's intact, you're going to be okay. But if there's like a definitive airspace, you know, a, a loss of continuity between the, the lung and the chest wall, that'll be an issue. But if you had like a, you know, expanded alveoli or something like that, but everything's intact, you're, you're going to be all right. So those are the contraindications, but other side effects, you know, um, higher pressure, especially you might see some temp, these are all temporary things, but some visual changes, there is a small possibility of increasing cataract maturation if you already have cataracts. 
it will lower your blood glucose. So in general, in my world and in your world, that's a good thing. And we would, yep. we would use like that, that to our advantage. Uh, it actually increases uh, insulin sensitivity. Um, but in traditional circles, you know, that, that makes people nervous because if they have like a wildly out of control diabetic and they go hypoglycemic in the chamber, that's going to cause a lot of problems. So a lot of those people get a juice box before they go in. <laughs> in yeah. my clinic, you know, we work on glucose stabilization and then we just use the hyperbaric to our advantage. So there's things like that, but, but, you know, applied properly and safely hyperbaric is, you know, very, very low risk and, and the possibilities for upside are, are enormous. Which kind of brings us to that next question, which is, you know, my biggest nightmare, I do, I spend a lot of time trying to get rid of the myths and misconceptions about hyperbaric. I spent a lot of time educating doctors about hyperbaric and, um, and certifying them in, in hyperbaric medicine. When I have a patient running around the streets saying, I tried hyperbaric and it didn't work, that's my biggest nightmare. And mm -hmm. a lot of times when that's happening, it's happening because it wasn't applied properly or it was not appropriate in the first place or we just never really gave it the chance that it needed. And in a lot of cases, 10 sessions, 20 sessions, 40 sessions, like these are not unreasonable numbers to expect, especially if we have an issue that we're really trying to heal, like a TBI concussion or autoimmune disease or you know, these kinds of things. So you know, if you have some significant health concern and you do hyperbaric once or twice, and it didn't work. Once it, or twice. It's not fair, <laughs> it shouldn't have worked in that short period of time, right? And so, with these memberships, my, my problem in general is that, you know, it, it, you know, hyperbaric chambers of any kind are still a medical device. And whether you're using it for wellness or using it to treat conditions, it's still an application of a medical device. And so certain training should be there in order to operate that equipment. And then an awareness of what to look for, what the safety concerns might be. And, and most importantly, an awareness of what the protocols need to look like. Because if somebody comes into the place and they say, okay, well, I'll take two, to your point, you know, I'll take, you know, one vitamin C drip a week. I'll try your red light therapy twice a month. And I heard hyperbaric was cool. So I just want to do one of those. You know, we're never going to get the results that we want. So really spending the time to educate people so that they understand, you know, a center like that, but it's doctor driven mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. clinician driven of some kind where you can say, well, this is the reason we're doing this. This is how it works. And really in order for you to get the results you're looking for, you would need two of these, six of these, seven of those, whatever it is, but to give people a better understanding of exactly the expectation so that they get the results that they want, you know, then a, a, a situation like that would, would certainly function much better. Should a consumer look for a provider that's got a certain certification? Like, is there something that you see, you know, a certain kind of initials or a, an organization they're a member of that goes, yeah, this person knows what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, there's a few, you know, I, I would, I would go so far as to say, at least have, <laughs> at least find somebody who did something, yeah. um, you know, there <laughs> are some training, right. And, and there are a lot of people out there, majority, you know, maybe not the majority, but a lot of centers that have literally no training whatsoever. That being said, I would, you know, there's sort of two or two main organizations out there. There's the UA in traditional hyperbaric circles where we're treating the on-label conditions in a hospital or an outpatient clinic, the wound care, the diabetic neuropathy, the gangrene, the you know carbon monoxide poisoning. There's a, an organization called UHMS, and they sort of govern clinics and guidelines around on-label usage. And then there's an organization called the IHA, the International Hyperbaric Association, and they're sort of the the folks who govern more of the less traditional pathway of hyperbarics. 
And so being a member of the IHA, having a certification that the IHA approves, you know, anything of that nature would certainly massively decrease any risks associated and certainly increase the effectiveness of the therapy because they got trained on protocol development and things like that. So that's the International Hyperbaric Association, right? And if you, they have, I assume they have a website. So if you yeah, want to find yeah, the doctor. IHAUSA.org is their uh, website, yeah. And they, they would have a referral center if somebody says, hey, I, I love what you're saying today and I want, you know, somebody who's Absolutely. had this. Yeah. 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 So um, that kind of takes us to a, a question, which is, well, are there, are there studies? Are there empirical studies that show this stuff works? Um you know, or, or not like, you know, what does it work? What is it known to work for? And what does it probably work for? So, you know, I'd still say we need more research. And that was really what prompted me to kind of go back to school to do research. But when I started 14 years ago, compared to today, there's a lot more today than there was then. There's a, there's a, there's a mountain of research on typically on most of the 14 on label conditions. And when I teach this, what I really teach people is that if you look at the if you look at the 14 indications, which are basically life and limb threatening, the mechanisms of action are all the same. They're on repeat: hyperoxygenation, angiogenesis, stem cell release. It's a very anabolic and low inflammatory type therapy. It stimulates growth, like BDNF and VEGF. It stimulates all of these growth factors. It stimulates stem cells and it, it reduces cytokines. I mean, that's kind of you know, and it, and it helps the body fight infection. That's really those, that's like the main theme behind hyperbaric. So if you become a master of the mechanisms of action of hyperbaric, that allows you to then look at pathology and say, well, we know this really well. We have a ton of research on these mechanisms. Your pathology is X, Y, and Z. Is it appropriate to apply this therapy for this issue given those mechanisms? Now, that being said, over the last, especially the last three years, there has been a, a great deal of effort into improving the research on all of these other off-label uses. So um, Crohn's and colitis, I mean, that should be, that should be an on-label. We get amazing results with those people, especially with like the ulcers and the fistulas and the fissures healing and stuff like that. Um, not to mention just the whole immune system balancing because of the cytokine issues, but uh, TBI and concussion. There's a mountain of research for that. If there was, if there was going to be another on-label use, it would probably be TBI and concussion. There's more than enough research for that. What about infections? You know, other infections, because we use it for gangrene. We use it for necrotizing fasciitis. We use it for chronic osteomyelitis. So all these anaerobic infections, and, and we don't give it to them first, by the way. You know, we give it to them last. So after six months of non-response to anti increasing antibiotics up to IV antibiotic use, and you still have these infections, then we buy hyperbaric therapy and it actually has an amazing effect. So, um, you know, could we use it for H. pylori, C. diff, Lyme, mold? You know, those are the kinds of things that we teach in the course. We don't have an overwhelming amount of research for that yet, but applying the mechanisms would make sense that here's other anaerobic infections that should respond similarly to these other anaerobic infections that we already know that it helps with. Um, I, I could have sworn I saw a paper on using it for COVID. Is that, was that? So there was, was a right huge push to use this for COVID because, you know, especially acutely COVID wasn't about 
the inability to breathe. Right. You know, these patients right. were breathing, but their sats were still dropping. Their oxygen saturations were dropping, even though they were able to breathe. It was a gas yep. exchange issue mm -hmm. much more than it was a breathing issue. And so we put them all on vents and, and there was this huge push to, to use hyperbaric because hyperbaric will not force you to breathe the way the yep. respirator will, but it will absolutely increase gas exchange. That's literally all that it does. And so I, you know, I ended up on a handful of phone calls, even international with like Scotland and Ireland, and England, and nobody was flying, right? Right. So there was this big push to use, you know, big 747s as airplanes or hyperbaric chambers, right? So uh -huh. if you're on the ground and you pressurize the cabin, you have these giant multi-place chambers and they're all plumbed for oxygen masks, yeah. right? Yeah. So like, yeah. it was a no brainer. And there was this huge movement through like March, April, May of 2020. And then, you know, then it became something you weren't really allowed to talk about. And then, <laughs> and, then you, and then, you know, all the other things that sort of yeah. went on. So, you know, it just sort of went out of fashion. That being said, uh, right now, there's studies on COVID in Brazil, Israel, France, actually one out of, uh, I think, New York and one out of Chicago. And so they're still looking at it from a active infection standpoint. And they're looking at it from a, uh, the long haul situation. These people are responding amazingly to hyperbaric therapy. So, so stay is, tuned on that. Yeah, one. This is something that, you know, we're clinically, we're seeing that. And everyone I know who do, does this, who are seeing those people, everybody is seeing an amazing response to these long haul people. So, and pretty quickly. So, well, one last question. What about using this for healthy aging? Does it help slow down aging or, you know, is there any research showing that this like blunt some of the known markers associated with aging? Yeah, so, uh, you know, aging, if you look at the pathology of aging, if that's the right way to explain that, yeah. um, and you look at the pathology of chronic illness, there's a lot of overlap in terms of uh, increasing in, in inflammation, increases in uh, senescent cells. So cells that aren't gonna die, but they don't replicate either. And they just sort of live on, but they end up, you know, uh, secreting inflammatory chemicals and other other uh, chemicals that you know interfere with normal cell communication, and then a decrease in overall cellular function and performance. And so, you know, theoretically, we've been using it that way forever, but we didn't have any proof for it. But I'd say again, in the last few years, there have been studies looking at cognitive decline or cognitive performance, and every one of those has shown amazing results. It's definitely something being used for things like dementia and Alzheimer's on a regular basis now that um, seems to be very, very favorable. There are multiple studies, even the on-label studies that show the decrease in cytokines, so the, the reduction in the overall inflammatory response. And then there are, was a study a couple of years, about a year and a half ago, that looked at hyperbaric and telomeres. So telomeres are these, you know, the ends of the DNA that protect the DNA from oxidation. And the law, you know, there's a, there's an idea that telomere length has something to do with aging and shorter telomeres are associated with shorter, more, you know, inflammatory lifestyles and longer telomeres are associated with youth. And for the most part, when we're looking at telomeres, we're trying to stop how quickly we degrade them. We have very few things that could actually grow telomeres. And this study that came out showed a 20% increase in telomere length after two months of treatment. And so that was, that was pretty amazing. So what I'm doing, so these were all studies that looked at individual aspects of this process. The study that I'm just starting, you know, we're literally, we're 
Um, we're enrolling people right now. It's just started a couple of weeks ago. We'll be doing this for the next six months, but uh, we're combining all of those pieces. So we're actually looking at uh, cognitive performance. We're looking at telomere length. We're looking at methylation panels that are you know, exploring the epigenome. Uh, and then we're looking at a 48 panel cytokine uh, test to look at you know, global inflammation and then doing a similar two month trial of treatment and you know, seeing the pre and post on those folks. I have to say 48 cytokines is a lot of cytokines. cytokines. Yeah. And ultimately it's because we don't, I found a lab that did a great large panel that wasn't that expensive and we don't know all the effects that it actually has. And so the broader the panel, the more information, I'm just trying to collect data so that ultimately I'm hoping that this funds a larger study or helps to fund a larger study on this topic that we can narrow down once we see, you know, which, which effects we're having. Well, this is all incredibly exciting, and I really want to applaud you on the work you're doing. I mean, from starting, you know, in a place where there wasn't a lot of data to really seeing it explode and it's being taken seriously by the mainstream. And so I think I think there's a very, very bright future for this kind of therapy. So I, I, I really want to thank you. Dr. Saunders for coming on the podcast. And, you know, I'm sure our, our listeners are probably going to want to uh, hear this episode more than once to get through all the details. Uh, if people want to follow your work or get in the study, how would they uh, how would they find you? So if they just want to see what we're doing and just globally sort of from a, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, you know, HBOT USA, we have a ton of information. That's our main website. If they want to learn more about hyperbaric in general, uh, we have a YouTube channel, HBOT USA. I have about 120 videos on there. Uh, we're about to put 100 more on in the next six months. So it's just a place to learn and just understand the content about this whole time. Yeah. Um, support at hbotusa.com is our staff email. If people actually were interested in the study itself and or participating, you can absolutely email support at hbotusa.com. Uh, we're, you know, we'll be recruiting at least for the next uh, four to six weeks. Um, and so, you know, we're excited to get people rolling through this and, you know, I know there's going to be a lot of benefit. I'm just excited to actually, you know, see it on paper and, and, uh, awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show and, and thanks for all the amazing work you're doing. That was Dr. Jason Saunders, who's the clinical director of HBOT USA. And thank you all for listening and we hope you tune in again. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Health. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.